As we begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm convinced more and more that people must tend to be gullible. I remember when I was a kid watching TV at home, and I remember there was a commercial on for Kodak paper. Do you guys remember that? Your pictures were supposed to be so much better if they were on Kodak paper. And do you guys remember who was in that commercial? Michael Landon. Remember that guy from Little House on the Prairie? We always called it my mom's tearjerker show. But I remember watching this commercial about Kodak paper and thinking as a kid, what's he know about it? He's not a photographer, as far as I know. I would be more interested if they said kind of like the toothpaste commercials do. Four out of five dentists recommend. And apparently it matters very much what dentist you pick because four out of five dentists recommend a lot of different kinds of toothpaste. But... But when you think about, you know, recently, I I see one that stands out as even more outlandish to me, and that is a commercial with Tom Selleck in it. Now, Tom Selleck has a long history of movies and TV shows and things like that, and I'll have to explain a little bit about it just in case you're not seeing the same commercial I am, because I tend to watch, well, let's put it this way, the channels that I watch tend to advertise things like life insurance, prescription medication, which, which apparently is not that good for you, and uh, silver singles, things like that. Uh, you know, I watch a lot of, like, Gunsmoke and the Virginian, and, and on those channels, anyway, this commercial comes on with Tom Selleck, and you know what, he's, he's looking all folksy and, and talking to you just like he does in a lot of his movies, and uh, kind of relating to you. He's telling you about how much he's looked into and he's sold on these reverse mortgages. Now, anybody really think Tom Selleck needs a reverse mortgage? <laughs> but, but apparently it works because he's got to be kind of high buck commercials that keep getting replayed over and over and over. They get a lot of airtime. People must be listening. It must be impacting people. And I think, are you kidding me? The reason I bring that up is because we can tend to be gullible. And people can be gullible not just in the things that they believe, but I've found that in connection to Easter, that I think that we can be gullible in the things that people refuse to believe also. Because I'm completely convinced that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has to be the most, if not one of the most, historically provable events in the history of the world. In fact, I was doing some more reading on it. One of the guys brought out, he said, you know why people end up not believing in the resurrection? He says they just cut it short. They don't do a full investigation. They don't look into it. This is worth looking into. This deals with where you spend your eternity in eternal life with God in a new heaven and a new earth or where you spend your eternity in hell forever in torment. There isn't anything that has more on the line or more to offer than what we consider to be involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time. I just want to kind of go over them quickly. When we look back at all the evidences that prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're astounding. The evidence that we find start off with his burial. By them having him put in a very specific tomb, owned by a certain man, Joseph of Arimathea, being part of the Jewish ruling council. So in other words, it was, it's kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. Well, by that, historians tell us, that has to be a solid fact. Because somebody of that notoriety within the society, you would never be able to pass off a story like that unless it was absolutely true. Also, the fact that there's an empty tomb. Even Jesus' enemies recognized that there was an empty tomb. The empty tomb stands out as a huge piece of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Also, the eyewitness testimony. There are so many. You know what? We often think of the disciples. And the disciples, there were 12 of them. Judas went out and hanged himself, so he's not counted in. But then they reappointed another one. So there's 12 apostles and some other people also that saw Christ alive again after he was dead. And not only that, but he appeared to large groups also. At least one of the groups that we know of listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that he appeared to a group of over 500 people. And at the time the Apostle Paul was writing it was less than 20 years after the resurrection. And he's writing it to those people and he says, look, most of these people are still alive. There's a few that have died. Most of them are still alive. In other words, you can go check it out. You can talk to these people. They're in your churches out there. And so there's this huge bundle of eyewitness testimony about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some interesting thing about those witnesses is, first of all, the character. We have a lot of writing from the apostles. And what do we, what do we see the apostles to be? We see them to be people of integrity and honesty, even if it costs them something. We also consider the closeness. These were people that were close enough to Christ, close enough to the event to be able to give you an accurate understanding of what happened. And then we also consider the commitment. John's the only one that died of old age. And even he was tortured. He just didn't die during it. But other than John, every one of the apostles died for the resurrection. All they had to do is say, never mind, I'm going to be quiet about it. I'm not going to teach about the resurrection anymore. And they would have been set free. All they would have had to do is say, you know what, we made it up. Which, that's really the only other alternative. Either Jesus rose again from the dead, or they made it up. If any one of them would have just said, you know what, we made it up. He would have been set free. He wouldn't have died. But every one of them died in torturous ways. Nobody's willing to lay down their life for something that they know is false. You see, that's the difference. When you look at other religions in the world, there are many religions in the world out there that people are willing to die for. But here's the difference. Those people that are willing to die for their religions, they believe that their religion is true. Whether it's true or not, they believe that their religion is true. You see, the apostles, it would have been very different they would have to be willing to lay down their life for something that they knew was a lie. Why would you do that? Nobody does that. And you're sure not going to get 12 out of 12 people to do that. There's just absolutely no way. There's so much evidence to the truth of the resurrection. And then finally, the presence of the church. The church, where does it get its start at? It took off like wildfire in Jerusalem, right, where the resurrection happened. Jerusalem would be the hardest place to convince people that the resurrection happened if it didn't happen. But you have all these people that saw Jesus alive again after he's dead. You've got the empty tomb that's sitting there that nobody knows what to do with. And you see this change in these apostles and these people willing to be beaten and arrested and die for this new truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, in the first century, there were actually several 
People that claim to be Messiahs. Some before Christ and some after Christ. And you know what happened to all of them? All of them tried to lead a revolt and tried to stand up against Rome and every one of them were killed. You know what happened to every one of those sects when their fake Messiah was killed? Every one of those sects faded away. Why? Didn't work. Leader's dead. And that's really the only choice you have. You can either pick a new leader or you can recognize that it's over and go home. You know, that's even what Peter and those guys started to do. They said, you know what, I'm going back to fishing when Jesus died on the cross. But something got them to quit fishing and go to preaching the gospel. It's that they saw Jesus Christ risen again from the dead. Also, there's a huge shift in the worldview, if you think about it, among the Jewish people here. That's going to involve a couple different things. One is their concept of the resurrection. You see, the, the Gentile people didn't look for a resurrection, obviously, because the Greek people, they believed in a dualism. All the things that were material, your physical body, were evil. And all the things that were spiritual nature were good. And so to them, the idea of a resurrection didn't make any sense. Because if you finally shed this physical body, and then just your spirit is left what is good, then why would you want that evil physical body back? They've been set free. To them, the concept of a resurrection, no, they, they just weren't looking for one. The Jewish people, some of them believed in a resurrection and some of them didn't. It's one of the debates they had among themselves. But even those that believed in a resurrection did not believe in an individual being resurrected in the middle of history. They believed in a future day. You see this in Martha. Remember when Jesus came to raise Lazarus from the dead? And Martha said, I know there will be the resurrection at the last day. You see, the Jewish people anticipated, or some of them did anyway, a resurrection that would happen in the end times at the last day. But Jesus pointed out to her, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so they didn't anticipate a resurrection either. We see that in the disciples as they go back to fishing. But what happens? All of a sudden their view of resurrection completely changes. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's the first fruits of it. More is to come. And they start living for heaven instead of this earth. They also have a major worldview shift in the fact that they worship Christ. A devout Jewish person would never consider the concept of worshiping a human being. When Jesus had appeared to the disciples, Thomas wasn't there. And when they told Thomas about it, he said, that's crazy. Unless I can stick my fingers in the holes in his hands and my fist in his side, I won't believe it. Well, when Jesus shows up the next time, Thomas is there. And Jesus looks at Thomas and he says, go ahead, stick your finger in the hole in my hand. Stick your fist in my side. And you know what Thomas does? He falls down and he says, my Lord and my God. For a devout Jewish person to fall at the feet of a human being and do that. But that's, you see, we see this big shift. And from then on, all through the New Testament, you see Christ is to be worshipped. And so you see this huge change. What would make that kind of a change? Nothing short of the resurrection. One historian put it this way. He said, if, if you can find some reason that would make that huge transformation in the lives of the disciples so that they would be willing to die for this, if you can find what would make that change, that they would fall down and worship a human being. He says, if you can find anything else that would answer for all the changes that you see taking place at the time of the resurrection, he said, you will have found something as miraculous as the resurrection itself. Because nothing could make that drastic of change in that culture and in those people shy of something as drastic as the resurrection. And so there's a host of proof for the resurrection. Why don't people believe in the resurrection? They just don't look into it. I know people that have acted curious with me that I've given books to. I come back, they haven't read them. 
Or you start to have a conversation with somebody about the proof of the resurrection, and you know what usually happens? Is the conversation kind of peters out. It kind of filters off into something else. Don't really want to talk about it. Don't really want to consider it. It's like Francis Chan says. He says most people's belief systems are based on their desire rather than on what is true. Most people believe, well, this is how I see it. This is how I want it to be. In fact, I've been in discussions with people before where they say, well, I would never believe that. I would never believe that. Even if it is shown to be true, I would never believe that. God Himself speaks out of the clouds and says, tells me this. I would never believe that. You see it with your own eyes. I would never believe that. You see, that's the, that's the point is there's a presupposition. They've got their mind made up. People have this presupposition that there is nothing supernatural. And that's why they're against the idea of creation. And that's why they're against the idea of the flood. And that's why they're against the idea of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because they have this presupposition. Their mind is already made up. There is nothing supernatural. Well, if you go into the subject, is there a God, with a, with a presupposition that there is nothing supernatural, then why are you involved in the discussion to begin with? You can't be. Because God is supernatural. And so it's like saying, I'm going to go into this issue with my mind already made up. And that's, that's kind of pretty much what happens. Well, the Apostle Paul asked the same question or made the same statement that Francis Chan did when he was on trial. When he was on trial in Acts chapter 26, in verse 8, it says, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He was arrested. He was on trial. And he gets brought before different governors and kings. And he's standing before, I think it's Agrippa at this time. And Agrippa thinks Paul's kind of going crazy. He says, Paul, your much learning is making you mad. And the Apostle Paul looks back at him and he says, you know I'm not going crazy. He said, you know I'm thinking rationally. None of these things happened in a corner. They all happened right out for everybody to see. I mean, you're aware of them. If God is God, why would it surprise any of us that he would raise the dead? He would be a being that could raise the dead. We have a very good reason for him to raise the dead and his son Jesus Christ. Why would it be surprising to us that he would do that? Well, the evidence behind us. We're going to move on this, this week to look at the results of the resurrection. What, and that's, those are the ones that we find in the book of First Peter chapter 3. Now the results kind of break down into two different ways that he's looking at it. First of all, he's looking at some things that are going to happen then. And what I mean by that is, is as we look through the passage, he has some things that are kind of, some things are now, some things are then. Then is when Christ comes back. When Jesus Christ is revealed. Notice it says that a couple times within the passage. Talking about our salvation in verse 5. says, ready to be revealed at the last time. And then also down in verse 7. It talks about our faith being found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so some of the things that he's talking about are things that we're looking forward to being fulfilled when Christ comes back, when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's when we're looking forward to the benefit of those things. Other things are now. Because notice in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He's going to go on from there to talk about our current experience. So some of the things that we get with the resurrection are things that we look forward to happening in the future. Some of the things that the resurrection results in in our life are things that we get to enjoy now. And some are a little bit of both. Well, let's just kind of go through these things quickly. The first one is salvation. Notice he repeats that several times in this passage. The same word is found in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then down in verse 9, it says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
In fact, verse 10, as we go on into the next passage, says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. What is salvation? Salvation is to be rescued or to be delivered. I know with our kids in our kids' ministries, I often tell them a story that happened to me when I was a little kid when a friend of mine and I were playing in my grandparents' backyard on the other side of the fence and there was an irrigation canal that went by and the water moved through there quickly. It wasn't real large. It was probably six or eight feet across and probably three or four feet deep, but the walls were straight up and down concrete and the bottom was concrete. And when the water was moving through there at irrigation time in eastern Washington, irrigation canals tend to flow very rapidly and have a lot of power in that water. Well, when we were little, I remember a friend of mine and I were playing by that and the grass was growing over the edge, so he couldn't really tell where the edge was. And a friend of mine fell in. I ran downstream as fast as I could, got ahead of him, and then when he went by, I was able to grab his arm and pull him out. And I remember a big deal was made, rescued him, right? The Savior of the day here. He got rescued. He got delivered from probably a drowning, at least a lot of fear. (laughs) Well, that's the idea, salvation. The Bible often uses that word to talk about us. Well, what are we saved from? The Bible makes it very clear that we're saved from an eternity in hell. We're saved from an eternity without God. We're saved from our own sin and its destructive influences in our life. That salvation has a right now and a then kind of a time to it. When you look through the Bible, the word is used about three different ways. It's used to talk about the ultimate salvation. When we're going to be saved, we're going to be in heaven forever with God or in the new earth forever with God. And and we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. There won't be any sin around, no death around, no pain and sorrow. It will all will be delivered from all of it. But then it also talks about the right now. When I put my faith in Jesus Christ right now, I receive the forgiveness of my sins. I'm saved. But there still is sin around me. And there still is temptation that rises up. And I still may fall to some of that temptation. But then it also talks about a salvation from the power of sin in our life. The more we overcome sin in our personal life, and we get victories over sin in our life. So the first salvation is a salvation from the penalty of sin. Don't have to worry about hell anymore. The second salvation is a salvation from the power of sin. We overcome it through the Holy ministry of the Holy Spirit and our faith in Christ. And the last concept of salvation is being saved from the very presence of sin when I'm with God forever. And so some of it's right now. Some of it is in the future. But it also uses this phrase talking about salvation, of being born again. It says, God has made us in His great mercy. You see, our salvation is not based on anything that we can achieve or do. It's based on the mercy of God. God in His great mercy causes us to be born again. Born again, a term that's been used for many different things through the world. What does God mean when He uses it? Well, we get a little bit of indication when Jesus was talking to a man named Nicodemus, who was one of the religious leaders in his time, And Jesus tells him in John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So whatever this born again is, we don't get to heaven without it. A little bit farther in the same conversation, he explains more clearly to Nicodemus what it is. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, what he's referring to is there was a time when Israel rebelled against God, and because of that, God sent venomous snakes into the camp to punish the Israelites. And so they began to get bit by these snakes and to get sick and to die. 
Well, God does as He always does. At the same time that He brought in that judgment on their rebellion, He also gave them a way of forgiveness, a way of escape, a a delivery. And He had Moses make a bronze serpent and put it on His staff and hold it up. And He said, when anybody is bit by a snake, if you go to where that serpent is and look up, all you got to do is look at it. So just an act of faith, look at that serpent, you'll be healed. Jesus says that was a picture of him. Just as, Mo, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man would be lifted up upon the cross. What did they have to do? They just had to believe. They just had to look. And that's exactly what we see through the rest of the verse, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what being born again is. Born again is at the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, to indwell you, and you have a spiritual new birth. You're no longer, as Ephesians 2 tells us, dead in your trespasses and sins. We become alive in Christ. And we have this new life that is within us. That's what being born again is. He's given us this salvation. We receive that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's through that that this is all accomplished on our behalf. And then also, not only salvation, but we receive an inheritance. Now, I love the way that he describes this inheritance. He says in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Isn't that cool? Can you imagine being able to buy a car that would never rust? I can probably imagine a little better than you because I used to live in Washington State, and they don't rust for a long time there. They do rust, but they don't not as quickly as they do in Minnesota where you salt the roads. Things that never fade. You know, I know in working on buildings and stuff here and there, I I remember a customer one time, they said, you know, I got a dent in this piece of siding on my house. And the house was very nicely sided, had steel, steel siding on there, quality stuff, good stuff. And they said, we have some leftover from when it was done. And we pulled the leftover out of the attic in the garage and pull it down. I'm going to cut a piece out and replace this little piece of dented siding. And you know what? It would probably look better with the dent. Because you hold up that siding when it was brand new compared to when it's a few years old and it's already fading. Quite a difference. I remember working on a house one time. We were doing tongue and groove all over the walls. They weren't living in it, but they had some stuff in there. One of, some of the stuff was a mattress. And we finished up this one section, beautiful tongue and groove wall, stood a mattress against the wall, and went to work on the next section. And there's a sliding glass door close by. A few days later, we pulled the mattress to move it. And you can see right where it was. Because the sun shining in that glass door was already fading the stuff around it and it didn't fade where the mattress was. Thankfully, since we live in the fall, it's faded to now it's even now. So it eventually caught up. (laughs) But now it's all equally faded. It's not unfaded. It's not good as new. It's equally faded. But that's the point. Is everything that we own in in our life, everything that we experience here fades. It tarnishes. The new thing is not going to be a new thing for long. It's going to be the old thing eventually. And you'll be needing a new thing. That's our experience. But the inheritance that we receive from Christ through His resurrection is unfading. It lasts forever. It's just like what Jesus told us. He said, don't lay up your treasures on earth where rust corrodes and moths uh, eat it up and thieves break in and steal it. Lay it up in heaven where none of that stuff will fade. None of it will touch it. But... What's the result of the resurrection in our life right now? 
These people have to be recognizing that, yes, we have a salvation that is both now I'm delivered from my sin, but I'm going to be ultimately delivered later. I have an inheritance, but that's all looking forward. I'm not experiencing that now. I just know it's there waiting for me. What do I experience in the resurrection now? And he recognizes that it's just like what Jesus told him. In the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Well, that's what's happening with these people because it says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So he's recognizing that you have the resurrection behind you, girding you, holding you up. But in this world, you still are going to have trials. You're still going to have struggles. We're not at that point where we're experiencing our inheritance yet. So we are going to have some struggles and trials. But in the midst of that... It says that we experience faith, for one, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It also had previously talked about the hope, this hope that we have, this bright hope, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have a living hope. We can have this dynamic faith. He also talks about love within the passage, that we love. And even though we haven't seen Him, that we believe in Him. What do we get to experience right now? We get to experience faith. We get to know God through faith and draw close to God through faith. There's been a lot of times where I've been alongside somebody when they're going through a struggle, going through a suffering, and they've made this comment to me, how do people get through this stuff without faith? Faith is a valuable thing. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we get to participate in that faith in this life, even amidst our struggles. He also points out hope, this living hope. Because Jesus is alive again, because He overcame death, we have this living hope. We're looking forward to the future. we got a bright future. They're going to someplace incredible. To sit beside somebody that's facing death, and they know that this death is not the end for them. It's, a, it's a, also a beginning. There's a hope. That's what we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have hope. The Thessalonian church would get confused about that and say, well, what about our loved ones that have already died? They were trusting Jesus, but they are waiting for Him to come back, but He didn't get here yet, and they, are, they died. Do they miss out? No, they don't miss out. He says, actually, they get to go before you. When Jesus comes back, He's going to resurrect the dead, then He's going to catch you up to be with Him. You have this great hope. In fact, he pointed out to them, he says, I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. Hope is a precious commodity in our lives and we have it because of the resurrection. Love. In the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, do we experience a love of somebody who would lay down his life for you. And not lay down his life for you on your best day, lay down his life for you on your worst day. You know, you see the love of Christ when He looked down at the people that nailed Him on that cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's an incredible, incredible love. So much of what is passed off as love in our society is actually self-fulfillment. It's, it's finding some another way of fulfilling yourself through a relationship. Jesus' concept of love is self-sacrifice, not self-fulfillment. And we experience that in the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And then the last thing that he points out is joy. I've been astounded at times in my life through my relationship with Christ is a place that I've found that when it seems like things are falling apart around you, you still have a joy. When I read through history and see people that 
lives were taken or properties taken that were horribly persecuted. I was just listening to something uh, this last week. They were talking about a guy, I think it was Bonhoeffer, who died in a prison camp. They found a letter of his. One of his letters talked about the joy that he was experiencing in the prison camp as he was learning how to forgive the people that were torturing him. Incredible. I've got to admit, I can't quite get my mind around that one too good. But that's what Christ can do inside of his disciples when they depend on him. And when they receive that resurrection power, that resurrection spirit. I was listening to one guy this week and he was talking about in any situation that requires forgiveness, if you think about it, there's kind of a death and there's kind of a resurrection if, if forgiveness is going to take place. Forgiveness means that you recognize that there's a loss, but you're willing to take that loss yourself so that there can be a new life, a new hope, a new relationship, a new resurrection.